Welcome back, Prime Timers. I'm Charlie Stevens, your host, and this is Primetime VC, bringing together the best in venture capital to compete around the hottest topics in tech. Before we get started, quick ask, please subscribe to our YouTube channel. We're building it out right now, organically growing it. We hit 200 subscribers, not enough. If you haven't subscribed, subscribe. If you already did that, share it with somebody else. Let's build this out together. We're in it together. Like that a lot. Now, let's meet our top venture capitalist guest walking in today's Thunderdome. Peter Pham, co-founder, Science. Always first on the dance floor. Clearly hasn't partied with me because I'm first on the dance floor. It's gonna be a little bit of a competitive day already. I like that. Nahal Meta ENIAC Ventures. Hey everybody, I'm Nahal. Uh, some peeps say, meaning my son says, I'm the Le LeBron James of VC. Must be the beard and uncanny resemblance to LeBron James. AJ Vaynerchuk, co-founder, Vayner RSE Ventures. Yep, that's my brother. We all know the Vaynerchuk brothers, but we also all know our defending champ from episode two, Jenny Friedman, founder, Supernode Ventures. What's up, you guys? I'm Cardi B of VC. Good to be here. Can't wait. Excited to have you back. Real champ coming through. Let's see if you can take another one. All right, here's how the show works. If you don't know, we're going to talk about the latest topics in funding, innovation, and technology news, and our panelists are going to give their take. We're going to give them points based on style, stats, and facts. The top two VCs with the most points move on to the finals and go head-to-head -head in the money round. Winner takes all, including the platform to promote whatever they like. Now let's get into the most electric show in business entertainment. It's Primetime VC, the show of accredited banter. Primetime VC is supported by First Republic Bank, banking built for innovators. Trinet, expertly human HR solutions. Brex, scale your business faster with Brex. Cash management and corporate cards for your team in 10 minutes or less. Use our link in the show description to sign up today. E2 Generations, we solve problems that live on Excel. First in. The world's highest paid DJs, the Chainsmokers, just closed their debut venture fund, Mantis, with $35 million. This is a step up from celebrities not only investing into individual companies, but raising their own funds. Aaron Rodgers, $50 million fund, RX3, Serena Williams started Serena Ventures. How involved do celebrity investors get with their startups while balancing their day jobs? And who is an up and coming celebrity investor that isn't on our radar? AJ, kick us off. Sure, so I think when it comes to celebrities, you're gonna see a wide range of involvement. I think some, believe it or not, are extremely involved. I think in general, uh, public figures are a little bit underestimated when it comes to their knowledge and their passion for the space. And so I know plenty of celebrity investors that are extremely active, extremely knowledgeable, and extremely passionate. I also know plenty of celebrity investors that just slap their name on it and hope it brings a return based on their brand value being brought to the table. So it's just like anything, you maybe are looking for more of a highlight answer here, but it just depends. And like I said, you know, for me personally, I deal a lot within sports and have met a ton of athletes that really know what they're talking about. And so 
As far as a up and coming celebrity investor, I'm gonna use a sport I'm not involved with, basketball. Uh, PJ Washington, recent first round pick out of Kentucky. He just did a partnership with a company called Sports Blocks. It's a little bit of a, a Fantex 2.0 where actually consumers can invest in his future earnings. So for a rookie to come out and do something like that right out the gate, I found to be impressive and I like his game too. It's good. Jenny. All right, I think you can't be a steward for other people's capital when it's only a part-time gig. And you lose the whole like real endorsement factor when you have Snoop Dogg or Kevin Durant promoting 60 different products. I think celebrities can bring a lot of value to the startups, but in terms of efficient use of resources, I think the model that, for example, Plus Capital uses is way more strategic. Um, if they're a growth fund with relationships with very different, diverse set of, of celebrity clients, and they get to know the strengths and weaknesses of celebrities, their idiosyncrasies, their likes and dislikes. So when they source a deal, they can play matchmaker by deciding whether they have a celebrity that could add value and authenticity to the deal. And there's, of course, strategic alignment. So the celebrity will have the opportunity to invest alongside the product that he or she's endorsing. So. I'm, I am not even an investor in Plus Capital, but you're welcome, you guys. And my up and comer, I'm just gonna say, this is not someone that's on the radar for investing, but like, Kris Jenner's just gonna do something. She's just gonna get in the VC scene somehow. So watch out for that. That's some take right there. Peter, what do you think about these celebrity investors? Um, well, I think being in LA and seeing, kind of building consumer internet companies, I see a lot. Uh, what I found is the celebrity themselves generally um, are passive. I think Jenny hit it right. They're not full-time. Their managers, on the other hand, end up being the ones doing all the work and we have found value. Uh, you mentioned the chain smokers, you know, Milan and Jeffrey actually sent them one of the first deals, Lone Snap, um, uh, called Jacob. They let them invest. We've had plenty of managers like Nick Adler, who is Snoop Dogg's manager, invest in things. Jay Brown, who's, you know, the manager of everybody. Miguel Melendez, Will Smith's manager. So what I've always found is the managers end up having more time to spend with the startups. But at the end of the day, you gotta remember the celebrity makes more money tweeting or doing an Instagram post, making millions of dollars doing a television commercial than they ever would on any return on almost any investment. So it is a time value. They're not gonna really do- How about, up and, come, how about up and coming celebrity investor? Um, I stick with all the managers. I try to avoid the celebrities themselves, to be honest. Nahal, do you agree with the managers are doing the majority of the work here? Or is it, you know, what's your take on the celebrity investment? I mean, listen, after investing in startups for, for 15 years, 10 years through ENIAC, when you see a celebrity on a cap table, run for the hills. Uh, it is a negative effect in the sense that they end up attracting a lot of investors that are, that actually are not uh, that good, that don't invest as, you know, per their day, day job, as, as, as was previously said. Um, I do have to say, with exception, uh, some investors like Nas uh, through Queen, Queensbridge and Peter, to your point, uh, Anthony Saleh, right, his manager, is uh, crushing it, right? I think of all the celebrities and manager duos, uh, they're probably doing the best. Dropbox, Seed, Pillpack, Seed, Lyft, Seed, right? Um, but they are... Uh, the exception, not the rule for celebrities. Yeah, Scooter, Scooter Braun, same. Like, just it's it always ends up being the managers. Um, like AJ's brother and AJ himself, Gary. Like, it's you guys manage so many people. You guys are great investors, and I think having that lens of understanding the celebrity on one side. We just did a round for Liquid Death, and we had Fat Mike invest. But that was because he loves the brand. And so when there's maybe the I love the brand, just let me be involved investment. Love that. But to seek them out. 
not worth your time. And is the I mean, is the fund essentially the next step up? And is this the move for these uh, investors? If they're all, I get a lot of phone calls. They generally try to find LPs, and they're all they're all raising funds now, whether or not. They succeed yeah, unless they do it full time. It's going to be very hard for them to be successful. You know, v VC is not a side hustle. Uh, believe it or not, this is a this is a full time thing. With approximately ten billion dollars of assets under management pouring into decentralized finance crypto markets over the past year, do you see or expect new institutional interest picking up as more traditional bank types yield products that are deployed into crypto space? Peter, start us off. Uh, yeah, look, we've been involved in crypto for a while. We did. We have one of the only Reg D tokens in the market. Science does. Uh, we actually have an investment called Real Blocks that is starting to work with very big institutions around. And again, it's less about crypto. It's about taking assets and make them digitally. We you can't believe that DocuSign is the last digital thing you ever do when you're moving securities around, right? They're all going to be digitals. We we have a state chartered bank called Protego, where we can do custody and prime brokerage. It took us three and a half years to get that license. And we're talking to every major institutional bank today because in the last two years, they couldn't custody their money. And so that didn't really exist. Now that that's coming to fruition, we can't sit here and think that we're going to continue sending reams of paperwork when we're moving securities around. That's insane. AJ, do you think Bank of America is going to be coming out the new crypto kitties? You know, I think in general, crypto is in a situation where it's still young as far as the consumer um, brand within it. I think it's still scary for a lot of consumers. It sounds just overly complicated. But when, like Peter was saying, when you boil it down, it's actually just a much better system for so many different uh, avenues and industries. So I think it's going to take time. It's not going to happen overnight. Um, I think, you know, when crypto had a, when Bitcoin in particular had a big spike, everybody thought the moment was now, but we see in so many other industries that it takes more time. So I don't know if the moment is now, but the train has left the station. Crypto and blockchain in general are going to drive a lot of different industries. Nahal, thoughts on the crypto? Listen, it's definitely still a shiny object, um, but, uh, you know, everybody wants to learn about it, figure it out. But I got three letters stopping this from really taking off, and that's SEC. Uh, regulations, regulatory hurdles, bureaucracy is going to become uh, even more of a problem in this industry for crypto to go mainstream. We've gotten a taste of it over the past few years, um, but I think it's just going to get it's going to get a lot worse, especially uh, in a good way when the Democrats take back the White House and the Senate, um, uh, which is positive for this country and this nation. Um, I think we're going to have more of the regulatory hurdles. Jenny, you agree with Nahal on this, or what are you thinking about the Somewhat. crypto? Um, well, we both hate crypto whenever we send each other deals. It's not, our, it's not my thing. But um, I do think institutional interest has already been picking up um, as we see more and more of the traditional financial products preferred by uh, traditional institutional investors showing up in the crypto space. So like trading volumes for crypto options and futures have been exploding this year. Can't really contest that. I think the I think interest from institutional investors is only going to continue to grow with the launch of crypto ETFs. Um, ETFs would allow institutional investors to invest in the growth of crypto without actually owning it themselves or having to deal with crypto exchanges. And ETFs would also be uh, subject to exchange rules, which would ease their concerns about uh, investing on regulated markets. I think earlier this year we saw listing of Bitcoin fund on the Toronto talk, stock exchange. 
Um, but like Nahal said, I think once the SEC approves the listing of a crypto ETF on a U.S. exchange, that's really when institutional in, uh, it, investment in crypto is going to be massive. You also have to think about, I mean, with the pandemic going on, dirty money, you think banks may try to up their game, do a little bit of the crypto side of it. But I think Nahal's got the right idea with the SEC regulations kind of squashing that. Jeff Morris Jr., founder of Chapter One VC, recently tweeted, he's never seen a pitch deck graph that isn't a hockey stick. Hate it or love it, the pitch deck is still the default tool for startups raising capital and is typically filled with a lot of fluff. How important is the pitch deck to you when considering an investment? And if it is, which section do you think is most valuable? Nahal, start us off. Yeah, we always say the best pitch deck is a product prototype. You know, don't uh, just talk the talk, walk the walk, show me the product, show me that it works. There's a big drop off from pitch, pitch deck to product. That being said, after I see the prototype, um, it's all about the team. The first slide should be the team. At the seed stage, that's all we care about. That's 90% of the journey. Startups twist and turn. They have a, a zillion pivots. One thing that stays consistent is the team. Jenny, what about you? Pitch deck that important? Yeah, I'm going to say I do think pitch decks, at least at a high level, are important. I usually say to keep it down to like 12 pages or fewer if you're trying to keep investors' attention. Um, if it's, it's a consumer company, the pitch deck is going to be a really simple indicator to reflect what type of branding we can expect from your company. Um, as Nahal said, team is extremely important. If you, there are KPIs that you have to date, if it's you know if you're pre, if you're post launch, post product, we like to see that. Um, and I actually like seeing the competitive matrix. I, my biggest pet peeve is when your company is like siloed in the top right hand quadrant, and then the only competitors are like one or two like very archaic businesses, the deep left bottom. I think showing competing companies in your matrix act in your matrix actually indicates that one, as a founder in this space, you are aware of the other competition and you have an action plan of how to create defensibility. And two, there's actually demand for your product shown by the fa mere fact that other companies are trying to create a similar solution. So that's that. AJ, I see you shaking your head. You agreeing with Jenny there? Yeah, I think you know you referenced the hockey stick. She mentions the competitor matrix. I actually use those two as my red flags. So if I see a hockey stick for something early, I struggle with that. If I see competitive matrix with your company in the top right and all the old boring competition bottom left and nobody else, when I know there's others in the matrix, I take you less seriously. I struggle with you. I think the pitch deck uh, for me gets more important the later stage of the company. You know, if it's something that's a, you know, a stage or two away from IPO, yeah, the pitch deck's probably important. I need to see some real data because you've been around for a while. If it's C, like Nahal said, I'm talking about the team. I want to know the team. I want to feel the team. I want to feel the vision. So I think pitch deck is based on stage for me. And then, yeah, those are two red flags for me, that weak competitor matrix and that you know boring financial projection that you just threw a dart against a dartboard to come up with. It's not going to happen. There's zigs and zags. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Peter, what are you thinking? I, take a, I, I think data is important. There's a reason why we call ourselves science. We're a little different. We, you know, we're all consumer um, companies, like you know, the newest one, Liquid Death. Uh, it's all about numbers. So for us, it's conversion, it's retention, it is understanding if product market fit is all inside the data, right? You'll see the re how much repetition, how much churn you have, and you'll understand kind of like what it is so special about the company that correlates ultimately to why the company is going to be successful. Not necessarily the top line revenue, because um, that can always be purchased, right? Like I can, I can take 
five million dollars from any one of these investors and give four million of it to Facebook and show you growth. Like that's, but that's generally not the, what you're trying to build. So yes, it's really about storytelling, right? The the deck for me is more about how do you tell a story, understanding that when I hand it off to Jenny or AJ or Nahal, like they're gonna send it to their partners or their colleagues, and and that deck has to have that message. Otherwise, you kind of get I call it the telephone game. It's really hard. They're getting pitched six, seven deals a day for them to remember the small things that I really want them to remember when they tell their partner, right? And that's why I think the deck's important. And how does the product, you know, an early stage product get your attention? Nahal, you talked about that. I mean, is there something besides just the story or is it, I mean, you talked about the product, but if it's early stage, it's going to be tough. Yeah, but it shows that the founding team can actually build and ship, you know, which is, which is a very important milestone um, because a lot of founding teams have so many other dependencies and if they can build and ship and sell themselves, they'll hire people that are better than them as the company scales. But we like those teams to be self-sufficient. Is that it? We're good? Yeah, I, th I mean, I think it's also important if you are pre-product and you are um, pre-traction, pre-revenue, at least show that there is some indication of product market fit, like at least have done some beta testing or done some research or, you know, done some surveys, do something to indicate that like there really is a need for what you're building. Um, any like that, the scrappiness factor, just to just show us that, that, you know, once this breaches the market, peeps are going to buy it. All right. Good stuff all around. Peter is leading right now as we go into round two. I think he's stealing a lot of points on the rebuttal side of it. So if you guys want to take over, maybe, you know, be a little more aggressive, throw a little action in there. All right. Buy or sell. This is buy or sell. Our top VCs will choose if they like it and buy it or hate it and sell it. Let's go. PitchBook just released their 2020 rankings for the university programs that produce the most entrepreneurs that go on to obtain venture funding. Buy or sell the value of attending a certain college for future capital raising efforts. Jenny. All right, as a fund whose thesis is literally based on the power of community and leveraging the strength of your network, I'm gonna have to go buy, especially the pre-seed. When some of our investments are in companies that are pre-product and pre-revenue, we look to invest in people and people's ability to execute. A lot of founders who are referred to us are people that are peripherally in our networks and we're more likely to, more likely to trust and it's all network effects from there. So in the short term, as remote learning becomes more mainstream, there'll be less emphasis on physical location, but connections facilitated by these institutions, access to other successful founders, tech professionals, VC funding, should be a main driver in an applicant's decision to apply to one school or another. And shout out to Penn for being five on this pitch book list, my alma mater. Big shout out. AJ, you agreeing with uh, Jenny here? Yeah, I buy it purely from what she just highlighted. Um, you know, for me, I personally did not get a lot from my actual education inside the classroom. And that's not a knock. I went to Boston University, I'll say it proudly. It's not a knock, they did nothing wrong. I went in with the mindset that I didn't feel I was gonna get anything out of it. And I was really just waiting to get to entrepreneurship. But the experience I got, you know, living independently and the people that I met, that's the key. So I think going to college is definitely a great aspect just in terms of the network being built. Um, the maturation that you can go through while going through that experience. I do think some of that's lost from the virtual aspect. You know, yes, the networking can still happen, but I do think it's tough to replace that peer-to-peer, in-person community development that happens on a college campus. Peter, are you buying as well? Sell. I think it's. I think that's bullshit. I think that I've 
and so we've been doing this for nine years. We've never, I've never asked the question, where did you go to school? I've never looked at the resume. I don't care. And I think also that it impacts diversity and why venture in general is like a very select, no offense, pan, but like Harvard, Stanford. Look, 68, so we have a $75 million fund that we've almost all deployed. 68% of that went to minority founders. Almost half that to black founders. I don't know where they went to school. Delane Parnell, he's raised $100 million for play, play versus. Grew up in the projects of Detroit. Like, I think he did a semester at Michigan. I believe so, but I've never checked. My point is like, I think you gotta spend time with the founders and look for the hustle. Yes, college shows that, I think back in the days that you had an effort and that you can be studious and you had a target and that you get straight A's, but book smart, street smart, and people smart, not necessarily translate to like the degree that you went to. And I think yep. I'm, I'm moving on. Is, I'm moving on from you, Peter. Doing? Moving on from you, Peter. Cutting you off, Peter. Cutting you off. Nahal, what are you thinking here? Listen, I, I agree to sell as well, uh, but for a different reason. I mean, DNI is a, is, is a very good reason. In addition to that, um, pre-COVID, post-COVID world, colleges are becoming more and more of a commodity. 40% yeah. Of Harvard's class deferred this year at Harvard. Okay, so these brands are now nowhere near as strong as they used to be in a post-COVID world. That's why I'm selling. Talent is going to be flattened and taken out of these very specific networks. And I agree with Peter. You're going to find incredible founders um, everywhere and anywhere. So I'm going to jump in, Peter. The point you made about the resume, I haven't looked once either, could care less. I agree with you on that front. But what I'm talking about is, you know, from my own personal experience, I'll look at myself, my experience, the school I went to, my brother's experience. My brother went to a school called Mount Ida, does not exist anymore. And to your point, he's super successful, right? CEO of a nine-figure company, multiple eight-figure exits himself, awesome. His biggest regret and where I was able to bring value in starting VaynerMedia was the network I built at BU and the network he did not build at Mount Ida. Not one person my brother went to college with, he had that went with him for the ride, right? Whereas VaynerMedia, early employees of ours, we had a lot of BU grads that I knew and trusted. I think that's important in the early stages. So I agree, when picking an entrepreneur, I'm not worried about where you went, but I think the success of an entrepreneur, college or college-like atmospheres that can successfully build networks are important. Yeah, net, a net, a networking, they could have been an intern at a company, they could have had their first, their last job. I totally agree. I went to UC Irvine. Not one person I remember from college. So yes, the, the person and can they build a network from where they went? And ultimately, they have to be as a great founder and CEO, they have to be able to recruit, right? Like that is your job. The, the concept of networks has changed also from the physical to the virtual world, right? So like pre-pandemic, the concept of that network was very physical. And now it's very, now it's very different. It's very different. It's on, it's on Twitter, right? Um, so, but if you so, guys get, if you guys get an Twitter. email from a, who, wherever you got BU founder and they, they email you and they're like, sup AJ, I, I went to be you, I like, I feel a responsibility to respond. I don't, I don't, if I'm being honest, I'll respond but that's my own fault. From Irvine. <laughs> I, I, I personally am at fault for not having any emotion attachment to my university. That's on me, not them. But I, yeah, I, I have no, I, BU alum emails me doesn't pull a single heartstring, if I'm being honest. 3D printing technology was supposed to have its coming out party back in 2012. 
it didn't pan out the way we thought, but VC money continues to pour in the space over the past year, $600 million in over 45 startups. Buy or sell 3D printing finally lives up to the hype. Peter. Have you heard of desktop metal? Like, yes, I, I would, it, it, it's all one of those, it depends, but companies like desktop metal who have completely changed manufacturing, I mean, the name implies what it does, they can print machines, they can print motors out of metal. And so real-time prototyping in factories allows them to make such an impact on manufacturing for cars to machinery. So there are, but I mean, that's not what I would invest in. It, it takes a lot, but there's absolutely huge change. I mean, there's countries like Dubai where it's mandated 6% of any building going up you cannot get a permit unless at least 6% is 3D printed. So yeah, there's a market. It's a good stat right there. Nahal, you agreeing with him there? You know, I'm agreeing. I want to create a line between B2C and B2B 3D printing. When 3D printing hit the market, it was very much consumer focused. You know, sell that all day long. Uh, that never took off. The B2B 3D printing market is real. You know, he mentioned Rick Phillips' company, Desktop Metal. Also post-COVID, um, all the manufacturers that are printing masks um, and other PPE, um, are really depending uh, and leveraging 3D printing to produce these at scale. So definitely buying uh, B2B 3D. AJ, you uh, supporting the 3D printing causes right now? I am, and, and Nahal kind of stole my thunder. I, I think the B2B application for sure. I think B2C, um, it's funny, in general, B2C always has kind of the fireworks and the excitement, and then sometimes it's too early, sometimes it's just not a fit. I think, you know, another aspect that hasn't been brought up yet is just the medicinal aspect that, you know, I'll mention the PPE, but also like just replacement limbs and, you know, inserts to the heart. And I just think in general, we're at a place where I don't think we can go back, right? We, we rely on 3D printing at this point. So if it's going to have its coming out party, uh, I don't know, consumer, no, but it, I, in my opinion, from a B2B perspective, it already has, and I just maybe people aren't seeing it. Jenny, what are you thinking over here? All right, well, Nahal, you literally stole my notes, but I think we're finally here. So COVID so badly disrupted global supply chains and production facilities, and companies that previously used 3D printing commercially just for prototyping were actually able to use printers to manufacture products that companies needed internally. So think about designs that were shared for open source medical hardware to make face masks, shields, ventilators, all that shit um, during the pandemic. And then companies are also trying to shorten the supply chain by moving manufacturing closer to their consumers. And I'm interested in this whole local manufacturing thing too. So also 3D printing lowers shipping costs and the ability to print on demand eliminates the need to hold inventory. So anything that can reduce physical touch points and cost at the same time, you gotta be a buy. Yeah, I think I gotta buy out too. The health tech industry is booming right now and using a lot of 3D printing technology, right? Absolutely. Oh yeah, for sure. Facebook, Google, Netflix, and the rest of Fang have unbundled the traditional media business models across print, music, and TV through transformative power of technology. What's the business environment required for these types of disruptions to occur and buy or sell, there's another unbundling coming soon in the media industry. AJ, what are you thinking here? I'm gonna sell. I think it's something that is a little bit of a yo-yo. Um, I think in some ways, consumers are maybe a little bit overwhelmed by all the different content options. There's much more content that we can consume. And then also people are sitting there saying, wait a minute, when I add up ESPN Plus and Hulu and Disney Plus, this is becoming more expensive than cable was. So 
I think this unbundling was very healthy. I think cable in general and things of that nature were um, overcharged and commoditized, but I think it's just kind of a pendulum swinging and I think we're gonna move a little bit towards the middle and hopefully find a sweet spot. And then when we do, we'll probably unbundle again and then repackage and it's just gonna bounce back and forth. And I think it's a never ending battle when it comes to bundling and unbundling. Yeah, I feel like I need a consultant for streaming right now. Exactly, like yeah, I need, I need a consultant to know like what am I spending on? What am I no longer, there's services I'm no longer using. There's eight new services coming out tomorrow. Which one do I need? What's $7.99, what's $12.99? So I think it was a good thing but it's gone maybe a little overboard. Nahal, what are you thinking? You know, I'm gonna buy, because with each new type of media, there's so many more opportunities. I think right now, we're still living in kind of a web 1.0, maybe web 2.0 world uh, with, 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 with desktop, online, mobile, streaming. Just wait until AR, VR hits the main stage with a, with a real consumable product that will probably be shipped by Apple and Google's shortly following. You will see uh, another huge swath of options for the consumer. Uh, and then beyond AR, VR, you know, what's next? Is it, is it Neuralink? Like, who knows? And by the way, there will be a Facebook for AR, VR. Believe it or not, there will be a leading social network. I don't think it will be Facebook. It'll be built natively. There will be a Facebook for Neuralink as well. Maybe that's 20 years away. Um, but I'm, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna buy. I think this is what tech is driven by. Every new media platform creates these amazing opportunities. Peter, buy or sell? Buy, but in a different way. I think the, the word media, it's really about consumption and people's willingness to pay for what they want specifically. And the transactions are so small, it's a swipe of your phone, right? It, and it shows up $2, $3 here. And we can look at common headspace. That's media consumption, right? Crunchyroll, that's media, right? Anime, for those that aren't watching it. Uh, we have a company called Prey.com. It's prey radio, it's religion that people are buying and it's content. So what, what, what you're gonna start seeing is just like the consolidation down into these other channels, not the HBOs and the Disney's of the world, but like what matters to you and you as an individual, maybe it's subscription to the Wall Street Journal versus The Economist versus The Atlantic, right? The unbundling is more about like, what do you want to consume? Everything is now available and with algorithms, machine learning and AI, you're gonna get presented to exactly what you wanna see for your consumption versus scrolling through the endless Hulu, Netflix, Amazon Prime, HBO, which I spend 40 minutes trying to find what I want to watch for 20 minutes. Well, the most important subscription is the YouTube subscription to Primetime VC, so definitely subscribe to that. Jenny, what are you buying or selling? Right, can I just say this is sort of an unfair advantage because like AJ's like the media dude, but whatever. Anyway, so yeah. the saying goes like there are only two yep. ways to make money in business one is to bundle and the other is to unbundle so like any way you turn it this is a buy i think the driver for the next unbundling slash rebundling could be gaming um reed hastings says that he's not worried about competing with tv content providers anymore he sees addictive games such as fortnite as the biggest co competition for eyeballs and this summer fortnite i mean i don't play but i heard this summer fortnite hosted an event within the game where you could actually watch movies with other players at a makeshift movie theater. Um, and you could like mute other peeps in your virtual, you know, you don't have to hear about that chatter in the, in the theater, which is cool. And then and if gaming providers decide to unbundle content with something like a pay-per-view feature, I think that's when distributors like Netflix become really vulnerable. That's right. I think it was a good take overall. I mean, I, I think AJ definitely took that and ended up taking the lead. So AJ, you've made it to the finals. I'll start off with that. Nahal and Jenny, I, I, 
slowing down a little bit towards the end, and I think we got to give it to the new guy. <laughs> we got to give it to the new guy, Peter. So Peter, you're guys, in the finals with I AJ. Had three verb energy bars, and it made me crazy. I, I'm studying. I worked hard for this. I even read the. I even read the questions beforehand. I, I didn't even know there was questions. I took an Adderall. That's all I did. It's the liquid death. Somebody check out the ingredients of liquid death. That's an unfair advantage. It'll murder your thirsty. But Charlie wanted to give you guys a a chance because Nahal and I are just so good at this, so I don't care. The money round. Welcome to the money round. Two VCs, three questions, winner takes all. Let's go. Spotify CEO Daniel Ek pledged $1 billion to invest in European founders focused on deep tech startups. Ek wants European companies to level up against the US to produce more unicorns. Why do you think Europe has lagged behind in developing super companies and do you think they'll ever catch up to the US and China? AJ, start us off. I think, um, I think in general, any culture, any group, any society needs leadership and needs guidance. So. I think they lacked because they haven't had something like Daniel X. So for you know, I think it's naive. Every every leader you know loses. Every leader gives up a lead. So with Daniel X, it's going to take more than just him and and his contribution. But that's the type of activity that's going to be needed for a Europe you know to create more unicorns. So I think he's taking the right step. Is it going to happen overnight? Certainly not. Um, but you know, I'll, shoot. As of right now, I'm not the most confident of all time in terms of what's going on globally, so anything's possible. Uh, Peter, what are you thinking here? Uh, success and derivatives will always be from the alumni network. It started with the alumni networks of the LinkedIn, the Googles, the Facebooks, the Twitters, Airbnbs, you name it. So yes, the alumni network from King and Supercell and, and Spotify, like those employees early, they go on, they make a ton of money, they might retire for a year, then they get bored and they, they start investing. They, so it will eventually, catching up is not necessarily the phrase, they will have tremendous success over time because the alumni, generally if you join a startup, it's addiction, like you, it's addicting. Like that's why everybody here is still doing it. You can't get enough and so that perpetuates more and more and more. And so yes, smart people, the alumni network, as we talked about earlier, right? Your network will wanna do something else and when you make money, you wanna, then invest into the next one. And that cycle, over time, you're seeing it where look at China. Like TikTok is the first social network not created in the US that is global. Think how big they are. First time ever. So of course, the next one might be Europe. Okay, so both dropping gems here, both getting a lot of points. Papa, a Miami-based startup just raised $18 million to expand its business in connecting elderly Americans with companions physically and virtually. On the flip side, Greenlight Financial, a fintech company, set up a kid-friendly debit card and raised $215 million. Startups for the elderly and middle schoolers are not your typical hyped-up industries in the venture community. Which space do you see most opportunity for investment? Peter, we're gonna go back to you. Middle school, because uh, I built consumer internet companies and that is, uh, they're connected. They grew up digital first. They grew up understanding what a cell phone and connectivity. And so that market is going to explode even more so with homeschooling, digital, mobile. There's a lot of money to be made. AJ? I like the elderly. I think, um, you know, if I'm, if I'm starting a startup tomorrow, I'm picking that market. One, I think to Peter's point, I think a lot of people are trying to attack that middle school demographic. I think there's a ton of noise. I think there's a lot of competition. I think the elderly is just very underserved. 
I think that um, the elderly, their children, you know, people our age are there to help. They want to help. And then soon in the next 20, 30 years, we're going to be the elderly and we're native. And so I think um, I like the opportunities there quite a bit. I'm not that old, AJ. 30 years, you're going to be old. I'm Asian. We don't age, bro. Esports gaming continues to solidify itself as an enormous industry. If you had to challenge your competitor to one game from any system in any era, winner takes all, what game would it be? AJ, what do you got? Peter, you've got no shot in Rocket League, period. I'm just dominant. I'm really fucking good. It's a massive learning curve, and I, it just hard. would be, an, it's, it'd be a massive landslide. That's all. Peter, what do you got here? I was I spent two hours playing Smash last night from till four in the morning. So it's, it's a problem Smash. for you too. Super Smash Brothers. I'm gonna take both. Oh. We got a winner. We got a winner. AJ picked the most ridiculous game. Uh, so AJ, you are a winner. You have won primetime VC. You have the podium to promote whatever you want. Take the stage. The final word. I'll, I'll jump in. Um, you know. Outside of venture work. Can I pull a Kanye West? Um, I would just like to say something. Uh, I think uh, everybody should vote uh, on November 3rd. And uh, that's it, AJ. Oh, I love that. You. you know what? I'm going to support it. I was actually going to go semi down that road. I'm going to reemphasize that. And the piece I was going to take, a subset of that is, um, you know, my primary day-to-day -day is working with athletes. I represent athletes in football, baseball, gaming, MMA. And the main thing that I wanted to drive home was just, you know, working with these men and women it's uh, and it's a little bit of the question from question number one. I feel like athletes have always been put into a box and I think our society and media has created that. And the thing that's probably hurt me the most over the last few years is the shut up and dribble concept. And, you know, it goes, Nahal, you just said like, these athletes, you know, they are people. They're not just the people that put up fantasy football points for you. They are human beings that have issues they care about, communities and people and family they care about. And, you know, shut up and dribble is the worst thing I've seen. And I think the antithesis holds true. They should have a voice. They have a platform. They earn that platform. They should use it. And a lot of them are talking about voting, like Nicole said, and I want you all to vote as well. Thanks again for watching Primetime VC, your go-to source for accredited banter, bringing together the best in venture capital to compete around the hottest topics in tech. Subscribe to the YouTube page, like, comment, share, everywhere on social media. Thank you very much. We'll see you next week.